0: Today's scripture reading comes from Nehemiah 1, which can be found on page 342 of your Pew Bibles. Nehemiah 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept, For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction that you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people who you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Okay, this morning's passage really takes us uh, to our congregational focus. If you've been here for a while, you realize that we've been, we're in the middle of a, in the midst of a five-year focus. Don't know where we're exactly in the middle of it, but we're in the midst of a, a five-year focus. Now, here's the thing. If you're not sure what the focus is, you will never know if I just keep telling you. Educational theory, students, pay attention. Educational theory says you can't just review and review and review. You've got to recall. So, for the... Usefulness of reinforcing this. What is our congregational focus over these five years? This, the special thing we want to do as a congregation over these five years. Uh, if you, you can't answer, if you're on EML core, apart from the EML leadership, what's your what's our five-year focus? I, I mean, you're gonna to have to stand and shout. Okay. Ah, well, excellent. You didn't have to stand, but you just have to shout. How, can, basically, the wording doesn't, the, the issue is this. How can we use our vocation to advance the purpose of God? How can we use our vocation to further the cause of Jesus? That's really it. Now, a little bit more detail. We got four ways, and just to make it so I can go through the PowerPoint, you get it? Do these in logical order, starting from the youngest to the oldest, okay? Or the simplest to the most difficult. What are the four ways that we're encouraging people to explore how could, they can use their vocation for Jesus? The youngest... The one you start with the earliest, the first. We're going to have to do this randomly? Okay, give me random. Give me one of the four ways. How can you use your vocation for Jesus? What do we encourage? Ah, become a pastor. Okay, which is the most important. (laughs) No. Okay, become a pastor, which is actually the fourth. All right, some other way. That's the most... Okay, some noise over here. Where? Change your location. Change your location. Keep doing the same job in a new location. All right, we're working in reverse order. We're going from the most difficult to the least difficult. Okay, another way. Well, yeah, so missionary, become pastor, become a missionary, those are all tied together in the fourth one. So you change your vocation into a full-time vocational Christian ministry. That's one way. And then the other way was, cha- keep the same vocation, same job, in a new location. Another way. A career. Change, your location. change your location. Change your vocation. Yeah, then we kind of tie that in with the fourth. Any of these things where we have to change our vocation. We tie in with you. Can either go into vocational Christian ministry, or let's say you're in a job where you don't really work with much with people, and you've decided you really want to influence people. So you you adapt your vocation, change a little bit, not entirely disruption, into a new vocation. Okay, somebody over here had another one. Somebody over here, you got the right answer. You may as well get credit for it. Okay, choosing a career, which is really the easy, the the, the least disruptive. Choosing a career where you can use your abilities to influence people. Now we're missing the one that applies to everybody. Okay, now I wouldn't actually... Yeah, 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 yeah. I wouldn't call it missions field, but anyway. working. Oh, okay, okay. Let's make a distinction here. Between mission mm, and missions. Okay, I'm an academic, we make we draw fine little lines, or I have an academic background, we draw fine little lines. So recognizing your vocation as a mission. How can you serve God in the current vocation? So you see, we got them all. Uh, choosing a vocation where you can use your gifts and skills to help other people, to advance the work of God and to alleviate human suffering. Uh, using your current vocation in your current location, recognizing this is God's mission for you in your current location. Whoa. Okay. Hello. (laughs) Uh, Okay. Once a liberal arts major, always a liberal arts major. What can I tell you? Anyway. Uh, Moving. Keeping the same vocation, but going and serving an underserved population, either locally or overseas. You know, we have such high technological expertise in this country. There's a the majority of the countries in the world you can move to and increase their standard of technological expertise, if that's your field. So one is to keep the same vocation and move to a new, new location. And the other is to change vocations. into something where your skills can be more directly and strategically applied to people's particular need. Right. So changing a vocation. Those are the four things we're looking at. Now today, we're going to look at Nehemiah. consider Nehemiah because basically he did the third thing. He kept the same vocation, but he changed his location. And it made a crucial difference in the work of God. Without him becoming a priest, a pastor, a missionary, he just changed his location to do the same kind of work he had done before. Now, one more bit of review before we get into Nehemiah specifically, is because, particularly if you haven't been here... Okay, so look, if you don't come here regularly, or if, you have, if this is, you're relatively new, you want to find out we're in the middle of a long-term series. Okay, we're in the middle of a few things. We're in the middle of a five-year focus, and we're also in the middle of a Bible survey for the sermons. So this sermon touches on our five-year focus. If you want to know where we are in the sermon series, I still have some of these uh, 12-page booklets describing where we've come from over the last, say, nine months. They're out in the, I have a few with me, or they may find some in the magazine rack outside the door. But let's figure out where we are, review where we are in Scripture as a whole. There have been three movements in Scripture up to this point. Three waves of what God has been doing. Now, in each wave, each wave of what God does has two parts to it let's see if you can figure out this is i'm asking the question in a different way today but let's see if you can figure it out because the more times we the more ways we ask the question the more you have to think about it the more it'll stick in mind what two things happen in every movement of god what two things right, we've been looking at constitute each wave of what god does one of them is what god does one of them is what we do what does god do grace Gee, I think that's a second answer from the same quarter. I don't know. There has to be some kind of reward here, Richard. Okay. Not, for, not not just for answering, but for answering right. That's what gets you reward. Okay. Okay. Heaven is coming. You wait. Okay. Sorry. That may be the only reward you get, but anyway. Okay. God shows grace. And what do we do? Well, we do disobey. That is the actual accurate answer. It's not the theoretically right answer. What's the right answer? Obedience. Obedience, yeah. So so it's supposed to be God shows grace, and then his people reciprocate. We're not, you know, we do think, God says, okay, live like this. But we're not earning God, grace comes first. But, but grace doesn't, this is relationship. Grace doesn't just come and then the, the, the normal, okay, God keeps pouring out grace, more, more grace, more grace, more grace. More grace. With no responsibility. Right? So God calls us to reciprocate. Now, here we go. Fine points. How does God call us to reciprocate? Two ways. That God calls... What, what all of God's people all across time have been called upon to do two things. Gee, look at you. We can move a lot faster. Worship and obey. And that's the two things. We worship God and we obey Him. And you know, obedience is really about living the way He calls us to. And... Sometimes the rules seem kind of random, but most of them are caring for people. So this is really where we... Now, we've gone through this cycle three times. First time was at Eden. God graciously gave Adam and Eve Eden, gave mankind Eden, and called mankind to worship and obey. And the first thing was they violated the reciprocation. Then God came a second time and gave grace to Abraham and Israel, and call them to reciprocate. Indulge me if you're new here, a little bit, too much, in a little out of detail to absorb at once. What were the three graces God gave to Abraham and Israel? Land, I heard. Land, okay. Another grace. Descendants, and another grace. Blessing the nations. There I make an ethnic comment. It's really hard when, when most of you are different ethnicity than I am, but I can tell this is an Asian church rather than an Anglo church, because you guys got the answers right. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> I can make fun of my ethnicity, right, as long as I don't make fun of yours. This is... I, I, no, no, I'm seriously, apart from the jokes and the frivolity. I, 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 this is good. This is very positive. So God gave Abraham three promises. I'm sorry, if you're Anglo... I'm not talking about your skill, your skill in school. I'm talking about my own. Okay, never mind. Okay, no more ethnic jokes. You don't have to scold me later on. (laughs) Okay. Abraham and Israel. God gave Abraham three promises to him and all his people, and they were that he would have descendants spread around the, that he'd have the special land that would be called their own. And then through there, God would work through them to bless all the nations. They'd become internationally preeminent, and all the nations would come to worship God and learn from God through Abraham and Israel. But again, Israel didn't worship God alone. And Israel didn't obey. And so they went into exile. But then the third wave came. What's the third wave? Uh, Moses was part of the second wave. But good try you're halfway there, you got the second. What was the third wave? They went into exile, and therefore, yeah, God brought them out of exile. And so that's what we've been looking at. In the last few weeks, God, they, God you know, the, the, the nation was destroyed. The cities were burned down. The people were killed in war. The, the possessions were plundered. The, the populace was brutalized. And all the leadership was dragged into exile. So that they couldn't revolt anymore. But God said, if you repent when you're in exile, then I'll let you back in the land. And so they'd come back. And that's what we've been looking at lately. We saw Ezra, the first wave of exile, is actually Ezra chapter 1 to 6, Haggai, Zechariah, these three biblical books. Ezra's not involved in it yet. He doesn't show up until Ezra's chapter 7. But this is the first wave. Ezra, Haggai, Zechariah, they come back and they build the temple. So they can do what? So they can worship. So they can fulfill their responsibility. God has just punished them severely. Fifty years of exile. the country to destroyed. They come back. The first thing they want to do is reciprocate. They build a temple so they can worship. And the second thing they do, Ezra 7 to 10. Ezra finally comes back. It's 60 years after Ezra 1 to 6. This is the second wave. 60 years after the first wave. Ezra comes back and says, Look, you get got the temple, you got worship, but you're not obeying. And so Ezra the priest calls them to obey and they take they make some drastic changes in their lives so that they can now be worshiping God and obeying God. It's a positive situation. Except, except, so turn with me to Nehemiah chapter one. We'll find out here except what. Ezra, I'm sorry, Nehemiah chapter one, page 342. The words of Nehemiah Son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, when I was in the citadel of Susa, uh, Nehemiah, Susa. Nehemiah is in the Persian, one of the royal cities, where the palaces were, where the government center was. Susa, uh Nehemiah's overseas, you could say overseas, there wasn't an ocean involved, but he was in another country. He was in the Persian Empire, in the capital. Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. And also about Jerusalem. So some of Nehemiah's family has left the Persian uh, exile and gone back to Jerusalem and to Judah. And now they can return to to visit Persia and their family back home. And Nehemiah asked them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and about Jerusalem, the state of the city. And they said to me, Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. They were burned long ago, 50, 60, 70 years ago. The gates have not been rebuilt. The wall has not been rebuilt. Nehemiah says, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. You see, God had said, if you repent when you're in exile, I'll bring you back. Then you worship me, you obey me, and you'll prosper. And they repented in exile, and God brought them back. And they built this temple, and they worshiped. They didn't obey, but Ezra came back as a priest and said, look, you need to obey God. And and they changed their lifestyle so they could obey God. And now we come. Ezra, remember I said, uh, this was uh, the first after about 50 years of exile, they come back to the land. Then 60 years later, Ezra comes back. And then 13 years after that, Nehemiah comes back. So they've got the temple built 75 years ago. They've been obedient, largely. They At least they cleaned up their act 15 years ago. Now, Nehemiah gets word. His relatives come back and he says, How, How's the city doing? How are the exile's doing? And he says, And they're not doing well. Uh, the city walls haven't been rebuilt Uh, The gates haven't been rebuilt, i.e. they have no protection from any of their enemies. They're surviving, but anyone can attack them at any time and destroy them, the people of God, the temple of God, they can wipe it all out in a moment. That's the situation they're in when Nehemiah writes. Now, I want to show you five lessons we can learn from Nehemiah that apply more or less, to any of us with the church focus. Uh, They apply to a minority of us at one level and then to a majority of us at another level. So here's five lessons we can learn. The first lesson is this. Ezra has been back in the country for 13 years. Well, God's people have been back in the country for 60, 75 years. And yet still the circumstances are desperate. Now, Ezra brought them to repentance. They changed their lifestyle. They're worshiping God and obeying God. And still the circumstances are desperate. With Ezra, the prophet and priest, the circumstances are still desperate. Now, we don't find out what Nehemiah does for a living until we get to the very last verse in this chapter. But if you look down at the end of chapter 1, you say, "You see, I was a cupbearer to the king. Now, a cupbearer makes it sound like he's the servant who brings in the cup like a restaurant worker or something. But think of the ancient context where emperors had armies. If you wanted to usurp the position of an emperor, you wanted to overthrow an emperor... Oh, it was like when um, Adlib illustration, I'm going to get into trouble. Uh, when Indira Gandhi was killed in India, who killed her? The assassination of Indira Gandhi. Maybe some of you aren't old enough to remember. The assassination of the uh, female prime minister of India. Do you remember who killed her? One of the bodyguards. You, you can't defeat an emperor's army. you got to Figure out a way to get close to the emperor and kill him. Kill him. Now, one way of convenient way of doing that in the ancient times was to poison him. So the cupbearer, yeah, protected the the food and the uh, wine, but the cupbearer was a trusted. He, he did more than that. It was a position where he was a trusted advisor, uh, a, a, a close aide. Maybe not the chief of staff, as we would have today in the presidential politics, but a close aide. He was a civil servant, very high-ranking civil servant. And we see that later on, because when Nehemiah says to the emperor, "Uh, let me leave, and the emperor says immediately, "Mm, how long are you going to be gone? I I, I can't go without you for too long. You're too important. So here's the first thing we learn, is that the book of Ezra is not the only one in the Bible written around this time. The person of Ezra is not the only decisive character in history at this time, in the history of Israel. Ezra and Nehemiah. And actually, in the Hebrew Bible, the oldest manuscripts we have of the Hebrew Bible, the two books are part of one, Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra slash Nehemiah. The first thing we learn is that God has use for missionaries. God has use for priests. God has use for vocational Christian ministry. But while Ezra was still there and had been there for 13 years, Their circumstances were still desperate. God has use for high-ranking officials in secular positions. Their well-being depended on Nehemiah coming to town and developing or, or using his vocation for the service of God. The first lesson we learn here is that God has use not just for the fellow who stands on the pulpit behind the pulpit and speaks, but for everybody in the use of their vocation. The second thing we want to see, Nehemiah, chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. They said to me, Those who survived the exile on our back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the Lord God of heaven. Nehemiah was not useful to God primarily because of his technical skills. We don't even learn about his administrative position until the end of the chapter. To be useful to God, Nehemiah, first of all, had to have a heart and a passion for the things that matter to God. He asked about the people of God. He asked about the city of God. And when he heard the news, he sat down and he wept. For some days he mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. He had a heart for God, which was crucial to God using him in his vocation. He had a heart for God, for God's purposes, for God's people. our lives get really busy. And it's particularly our jobs that make us so busy. And we have this old saying, when you're up to your waist in alligators, it's hard to remember that your purpose is to drain the swamp. We get so busy at work, so busy just trying to stay skilled and keep up, that we can lose track of what our real purpose is for being at work is. And then if you have children, we're so busy trying to survive, just maintain the kids and the job. And if you've got double income, both parents are working, it's just virtually impossible. Survival is about as much as we can manage. Somehow, in all of that, we have to keep this heart for God and a sense of what his priorities for our lives are. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days, I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah had a high-ranking position. As a foreigner, how difficult it would have been to attain that position, to be trusted by the emperor. He had a high-ranking position. His life would have been full. And he didn't lose a heart for God how do we nurture that keep that alive in the midst of life's frenetic pace so if you I don't have permission to use this illustration but I'm going to take it for granted that I can or that I'll be forgiven this is a nice congregation you know if I say something I, I shouldn't I can be forgiven it's very nice working here all uh, right so, if you miss Sunday school today with the 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 whole theme of Sunday school is about using your vocation for God, uh, if you missed Sunday school today you missed you missed something uh, re- really uh, meaningful and emotive, and i 'm hoping I can get through this because you know um, Karen was sharing about her work in special needs dentistry because somehow. God gave her a heart for special needs people and a skill in dentistry. And it's significant how we can use dental skills or any kind of professional skills if we have that, if we nurture and keep that heart for God alive, how we can use our professional skills to be his servants among his people. What heart has God given you? What has he placed on your heart? When you have time to think about it, and you're not frantically running after your kids or or trying to get ahead at at the workplace, what heart has God given you? You know, we obviously, we all know, we have someone in this congregation, at least one person, with a real heart for orphans from China. But what has God laid on your heart? We have people with a heart for foster kids in the U.S., We know, we've talked about it publicly, we've got people that have a heart for blue-collar workers in Taiwan, even though they are not blue-collar workers, or they may be from Taiwan. We have people with a heart for intellectuals in China. We've recently had a case of somebody with a heart for child soldiers and prisoners in Uganda. Maybe you have a heart for the ch- for seekers who come to this country from China. You have a heart for children, and you have a heart for seekers, and you can blend them together by looking after the children of seekers that come to this church. We have a pe- we have people with heart for scripture memory among children. We have uh, a ho- we have people with heart for uh, the nurture and discipleship of children, like in the Iwana program. What has God placed on your heart? You're only useful to God through your vocation if you can keep that thing alive. You've got to carve out some space. But this is, text is, is n- not scolding about but it's, it's giving us a positive portrait of how God can use you and your professional skills. If what moves his heart also moves your heart. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed. What is it that causes you to sit down and weep? That motivates you to mourn and fast and pray? How can you turn your vocation to serve those needs in the world around us. A third thing we learn from this passage is Nehemiah's spiritual depth. Verses 5 to 11. Listen to this. First, he recognizes the character of God. There is where he begins his prayer. This is Nehemiah's prayer. But look how theological. You know, we only have maybe, I don't know, 12, 15. I didn't count them. We have only 12 or 15 prayers, of God, prayers to God in Scripture, apart from the Psalms, of course. But if you look for prayers embedded in Scripture, we've got less than two dozen of them in Scripture. And one of them comes from this ranking civil servant a politician or an administrator, one of the promises, one of the prayers to God that Scripture gives us as a model. Do you, see, do you see the depth that he brings? First of all, he starts with the character of God. He's going to pray and he's going to ask God for something. He wants to make sure that he can ask this from God, that he can not pressure God into doing it, but that it's a legitimate request that he can hold God to. Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, God has the power. That's where he starts. You keep your covenant of love. God has mercy and love and commitment. You see the theological foundation for his prayer. God has the power to do it. God has the heart to do it. You keep your covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying. God, you've said you're powerful. God, you say you care about your covenant people. So now listen to me, because I'm going to pray, and I need your power, and I'm going to rely on your care for your covenant people. The foundation and the character of God. And then he goes on, secondly, to confess their sins. I confess the sins that we Israelites, including myself and my family's father's family, have committed against you. We've acted wickedly. We've not obeyed the commandments, decrees, and laws that you gave your servant Moses. He admits, acknowledges before God that the predicament they are in was one they made for themselves. It wasn't because God lacked power. It wasn't because God lacked love. It was because they made this for themselves. He admits it and, and, and confesses this sin before God. And then the third part of his prayer in verses 8 to 9. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. Funny. Remember? Remember it says here? Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses? If you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the nations. I'll send you in exile. Nobody needs to be reminded of this, right? God didn't need to be reminded because he'd just done it. And Israel didn't need to be reminded because they just suffered it. But he reminds God of the first half of that prayer in order or warning to remind him of the second half. Not only did you warn us that if we disobeyed you, you'd send us into exile, but there's something else. You said that if your exiled people were at the furthest horizon, no matter how far they are across the world, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. God, you promised. You promised to, to, to judge us if we sin, and you did. Now you also promised to bring us back. And restore us if we repented. And we have. Do you see the theological depth of this prayer? Then he brings it all together. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. God, you've used your power and your love and you've redeemed them. Now, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant, And to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name, give your servants success. Nehemiah says, I'm about to do something that could risk my life and will certainly hurt my career. Now, God, you've promised you're strong. You've promised you're loving. You've promised to bring us back if we repent. We've repented. You've brought us back. Now, God, I'm going to ask one more thing of you. I need you to intervene here. Look, the, the lesson we learned from this, we still haven't, the text, I have told you, but the still, text still hasn't told us about Nehemiah's uh, administrative skill and his high position in government. What we learn here is that it's not his skill, fundamentally, primarily, which makes a difference. He begins with his spiritual depth. Matteo Ricci is one of the most famous names in the evangelization of China. Rightly famous name. It's not Protestant missions, so we've heard about Hudson Taylor, but Matteo Ricci was Catholic missions, but he was about 250 years before Hudson Taylor, before the Protestants caught on. Matteo Ricci had a classical education. Yeah, he was uh, uh, prosperous, his family was prosperous, he had a proper classical education, rhetoric and logic and so forth. But he didn't stop there. He also got an education in the advanced sciences of the days mathematics, cartography. Uh, the, basically, the advanced sciences of his day, he was educated in them. But in the midst of all of that, he didn't just study math and cosmology, astronomy, cartography. He also studied theology. He was trained as a Jesuit, the academic um, order in the Catholic Church. So he spent years of training in classical education, in science, and then in theology as well. So that when he finally went to China in the 1500s, he was able to give thought... So he was the first Westerner to be allowed into the Forbidden City. He never met the emperor, which was kind of his goal, but because the emperor was kind of a recluse. But he made it into the Forbidden City, the first Westerner. Because of his technological expertise. Brilliant fellow. He gave clocks to the palace. And they hadn't had them before. Now you give a mechanical clock to the palace, what are you going to need? Somebody to repair your clock. He made maps of the world as a cartographer. And these are the first outside maps available to the emperor and the court. He used his scientific skills. He could predict an eclipse, which was hugely significant in Chinese cosmology. He could predict when the eclipse was coming because he had studied cosmology. So he used his scientific skills. But here's the thing. Mateo Ricci had access because of his science, but he wasn't so fundamental and and influential because of his science. That gave him access. He, He was influential and instructive for the entire missions movement in China because he also studied theology. And he gave a lot of thought to, if we're going to reach the Chinese, how do we have to do it? We can't just do it the way Westerners do things. We can't just share the force. of ritual. What are we going to do about ancestor veneration? What are we going to do about Confucian scholars and Confucian rituals and Confucian rites? How are we going to handle this? Uh, Matteo Ricci was able to be influential because he wed together the scientific and technological and the theological. Because he had heavy training, top-line training in both. You know, we want to give some thought to how much training we provide. You know, we do we do send tent makers overseas, and they can use their professional skills to get access. It, access is not available to clergy. But we got to give thought, too, to the theological training of tent makers. Or else they won't be able to do the sort of thing that Ichi did. You know, the kind of thing we learn in Christian fellowship on campus is, is useful, it's good, but it's not enough kind of thing we learn in Sunday school in sermons it's useful it's good but it's not enough if we want to be fully influential in using our skills moving on another point I'd make about Nehemiah chapter 2 what does he do? first thing he does is he seeks an appointment with the emperor and he says to the emperor look I want to go to my homeland, to my ancestral homeland. The first thing he does is he risks his current career and his career progress because he wants to go overseas, or he wants to go back home. He wants to use his profession for the work of God. So he subordinates his career advancement to where the need is greater. He wanted to serve an underserved population. He asks basically for a leave of absence. Without, without consideration of what ramification that might have for his career advancement. And then when he got to Israel, to Palestine, then he used his administrative skills to organize the people. So we see first he subordinates his career to the work of God, and then he uses his career in the work of God by moving from a place where he had prosperity and position and uh, elite recognition and authority, and he moved his career from there to where the need was greater. A good role model for tent makers today. And then in chapter 3, we can read all through chapter 3. The remarkable thing about chapter 3, we won't read it all now. The remarkable thing about chapter 3 is there's only one mention of Nehemiah in all of chapter 3, and it's not the same Nehemiah. It was a common name, it's just another Nehemiah. Nehemiah disappears from view. Nehemiah, chapter 2, he organizes the people. Chapter 3, what happens? The people do the work. And the repetitive phrase in in chapter 3 is next to him, next to him, next to him. And the author goes down a whole list of people, at least 42 names of people that worked on the wall and rebuilt that wall. And all Nehemiah did was organize them. We see here that Nehemiah was able to keep his ego under control. It wasn't really all about him. Tom Chappell founded Tom's of Maine. Tom's of Maine is a personal care product company that uses only natural ingredients. You know, toothpaste, uh, makeup, that sort of thing. Only natural ingredients, Tom Chappell. Now Tom Chappelle, in the course of his career, he also got a THM at Harvard. And he's uh, one of the leaders in the Episcopal Church. Tom Chappelle says this. Sure, I'm a religious man who's also passionate about conserving the environment. But I'm also a CEO with all the bad habits and attitudes that are natural in the species. I'm still naturally self-interested, overconfident, full of pride, and eager to control a meeting just like every other CEO in America. Every day I struggle with my ego. So we see in Nehemiah, somebody who doesn't just think, I'm important in the empire, therefore I'm gonna be important here. We see someone who makes space, and the text that makes space for all the other co-workers alongside. And one final point I would draw from this, a bonus, because I told you seven and I'm, I told you five and I'm giving you six. One final bonus in this is the result. We've got Ezra the priest, we've got Nehemiah the executive. They come together, they build this wall, they build the temple, they build the wall, they're worshiping God and they're obeying God. And what's the result that comes from all of this? As everything converges in a divine scheme, what's the result? Well, Chapter four, the locals oppose them. Chapter five, the Israelites exploit each other financially. Some have to sell their homes, some have to sell their children to stay alive because they got loans from other Israelites. Chapter six, a trader develops a plot with their enemies to turn Nehemiah over to them and he escapes it. Chapter seven, they finally get the walls built and there's no homes or people living inside the walls. They've got this great wall with nothing, no purpose. The, the point, final point I would draw from this is this. We need endurance. We need perseverance. Because even when the people of God work together with the priests of God and the administrators of God, the work is still hard. It still takes time and moves slowly. Let's pray together. Father, May we, in a small way or in a big way, like Nehemiah, see you at work in our lives, through our vocations, and through our community. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Thanks, Chuck.